Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Let's start this week's show with a few stats about McLaren. They finished ninth in the 2017 Constructors' Championship, 6th in 2018, 4th in 2019, and they currently lie 3rd in 2020. They're on an impressive upward swing, so why don't we catch up with the boss, see what makes him tick, and find out about his plans for the future. Hi everyone, I'm Tom Clarkson, and welcome to Beyond the Grid. My guest this week is Zach Brown, the CEO of McLaren Racing, a sponsorship guru for more than 20 years. Zach took over from Ron Dennis at the Woking team in the winter of 2016-2017. They were big shoes to fill, and yet Zach took it all in his stride, and a team that was in crisis is now a team oozing confidence. Zach made some great hires, including team principal Andreas Seidel, and he's restructured the management of the team, making everything more cohesive. But there's more to Zach than his management skills, and that's why this week's episode was such a pleasure to record. He's passionate about Formula One. He's loved it since he watched his first Grand Prix at Long Beach 40 years ago, and that raw enthusiasm is infectious. A chat with Zach about racing is a positive one. And no wonder he's proven to be so effective at selling the sport to FTSE 500 companies. He's living the dream, and he's brilliant at selling the dream to sponsors. But like so many people in the Formula One paddock, he was first drawn to the sport because he wanted to drive. He started karting in his native California and moved to England to pursue his ambitions of Formula One. He climbed as high as Formula Three, in which he raced against the likes of Juan Pablo Montoya and Dario Franchitti. And even though he was quick, the realization began to dawn that his greatest skills were in finding the money to race. He went on to set up a hugely successful sponsorship agency, and his first deals in Formula One were, ironically enough, with McLaren, which is where he is today. Zach is a colourful character with a fascinating backstory. There's some great stuff in this chat about Lando Norris, Fernando Alonso, Carlos Sainz and Daniel Ricciardo. Plus, Zach gives us the lowdown on how much money he reckons he's brought into the sport and his mind-blowing car collection. You won't believe the gems he's got. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Zach, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on Beyond the Grid. Thank you for having me on. Well, look, let's start by talking all things McLaren, because we're coming up to the fourth anniversary since you took over the reins. How's the team changed in that time? Uh, well, it's gotten better. <laughs> so that's, uh, Results have gotten that's, better. <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, you know, when I came in at the very end of 2016, I think the team was in, uh, you know, complete turmoil really kind of from shareholder on down it was you know obviously well documented that ron dennis who i think's a 
a legend in the in the sport, uh, always has been, always will be, um, had fallen out with the shareholders. So I think when you have um, boardroom drama going on, that then trickles down throughout the entire organization. And so what I found when I joined was a lack of leadership and direction because it was kind of a lot of uh, infighting and people not paying attention to the Formula One team. They were, I'll buy you out, you buy me out, uh, stuff going on. Then we obviously had the Honda engine, which uh, proved in the back of our car uh, to not be very uh, competitive, so we had to deal with that. Then, of course, we moved to Renault, and we thought that would solve uh, the world's problems, and uh, as we know, it didn't. We uh, certainly were a big contributor to our lack of success in that period, and so went about, uh, from that point onwards, making a a lot of changes. Actually, not that many changes from a a people standpoint, because you have a lot of people that have won our 20 World Championships that are in the factory, but just kind of simplified the leadership, brought in Andreas Seidel, brought in James Key. So ultimately brought some clarity to the organization, changed the marketing department, changed my leadership team, uh, all but Laura, our RFD, and then worked about just kind of creating a, a team atmosphere. And so it's been a quick four years in some sense. Um, been a long four years in, in another, but I think we're in a, a groove now. I feel like we have the right people in the right place, the resources we need, two great drivers this year, two great drivers in the in the future, and uh, sponsorship's been going great. You know, we uh, when I started, we were probably also at our low from a, a partnership standpoint, and then um, kind of fast forward a couple of years, we have over 40 partners now, so it's all coming together, but still a long way to go. How have you changed in the four years? That's a good question. Um, I'm enjoying going to the racetrack. You know, I never felt the, a lot of people said, you know, do you feel pressure? And in Formula One, you know, if you don't get a result right away, uh, the pressure's on. But I always had immense support from the shareholders and they've been around the sport long enough to know that you don't turn things around. So I always felt comfortable. I had the support and the runway to show that I could lead getting the team going back in the right direction but there's nothing fun about going to a racetrack when you know you're going to be out in q1 or a strong result is maybe you'll get a a point uh because i'm a racer i want to win i at least want to be competitive and those early days were were just brutal but i like a good challenge so it didn't it didn't get me down it was just frustrating and let's turn the corner. I would say these last couple of years have been uh, really enjoyable. You know, some podiums now, you know, we're competitive, we're, we're disappointed if we're not in Q3 all the time, which we have been the majority of the season. We've missed out on a, a couple times. And so it's very enjoyable and everything's, there's a lot of harmony in the, the racing team. So um, I would say I'm, I'm happy and I feel like we have momentum and we just need to keep that momentum. Zach, how much of a step into the unknown was this for you? You've run businesses and we're going to talk about that, the marketing side of your background in a bit. But from a racing team point of view, was it a step into the unknown? Were you a little bit nervous four years ago? It it was a bit of a step into the unknown. I mean, I've been around racing my entire life, but I'm not a engineer. I'm a racer slash marketer. So that's the side of the the business, if you'd like, that I'm I'm very comfortable with. I think there's a real racer instinct once having driven, just kind of knowing what a good race team looks like. That being said, I'm not technical or engineering focused at all. 
so you got to learn to trust the people, hire the right people. I'm not one who's going to go in and pretend I know something I don't or pretend I can contribute in an area if I, quite frankly, don't know what the engineers are talking about. That being said, I now understand it all, which is fun. And actually now I enjoy the technical side more because I understand it. I can't repeat it and I can't contribute, but at least, you know, when we're sitting down around the table and they're using some of these fancy words, I understand what they're saying. So that's enjoyable because that's a learning experience for me. Were you a McLaren fan before you joined the team? My entire life. McLaren was always my team. You know, there were three big teams. When I grew up, I was um, kind of late 80s, 90s, it was my fandom area uh, era, if you'd like. I was a huge Senna fan, you know, the MP44, 1988. That was kind of my first year of really following Formula One. I remember Senna in Detroit uh, and Monaco in, in the Lotus. So that was kind of started to become a fan then. And then I always, you know, McLaren, that era, they were so dominant. They were the best at everything. So you were either a, a McLaren fan, a Ferrari fan, or a Williams fan. And uh, I liked all three teams, but McLaren was my uh, was my number one. So here's the thing. You have owned your own marketing business. You own your own racing team that's involved in other categories, United Autosports. How is the job of running a team different when you compare being an owner to an employee, which is what I guess you are here at McLaren? I'm definitely an employee. Um, you know, the, the United Autosports, which is the sports car team that I own, I do that for uh, fun. It's a, it's a serious business. My partner, Richard Dean, runs it, but that's almost my uh, vacation time. So I, um, I try and help as much as possible, but it's more about a, a free weekend. I like to be at the, uh, the race. Sure your wife, Tracy, loves yeah, that, Yeah, right? exactly. No, we're going she, on she, vacation she, to Le Mans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I don't have anyone to report to at uh, United Autosports. At McLaren, I've got a, a board and shareholders. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I feel responsible to all the other race team members. You know, I kind of feel like I'm the quarterback of the team, but I feel that I work for them as much as they work for me. So it's it's a totally different thing. The responsibility, the pressure, I can relax at United Autosports and uh, McLaren's pretty pretty intense every day. Will you ever become a shareholder at McLaren? Do you need skin in the game? Um, I, I don't need skin in the game because I feel like I have skin in the game. It's, you know, it's my passion. It's my love. It's my reputation. Would I love to be a shareholder one of these days at McLaren? That would be awesome. I, I can definitely see myself being at McLaren for decades. You know, I've, I did um, my old company, JMI, for 23 years. I'm four years into this. It kind of feels like yesterday. I'm 48 years old, I think. And uh, I'm one of those that, you know, like Bernie and like Ron and like Frank, who are going to kind of work till they're 70, 80 years old. And that means, you know, I could do this for another 20 plus years. And there's no team I enjoy more than McLaren. And I love that we're in Formula One. We're in IndyCar. I'd love to see us get back to sports cars. So, you know, my dream would be Formula One World Championship, Indy 500, IndyCar Championship, Le Mans. And you can, we can do all those things at McLaren, but that probably take 20 years. So um, I've got big aspirations. Have a driver win the triple crown all in McLaren. I'd like to be the first team boss to win the triple crown. <laughs> okay, I nice, got to blame nice. Fernando for that. Yeah. <laughs> Zach, what about your management style? Because it seems to me you hire 
high profile people and have them sort of sit near you in the organisation. Look at Andreas Seidel here at McLaren, Richard Dean, you've already mentioned at United All Sports, John Flack at JMI. Is that an accurate observation? And how does that free you up to do different stuff? Yeah, I think um, you got to hire the best people uh, possible. You know, these are big organizations. So you got to get the best talent possible. I've always, I have an advisory board, which are about a dozen who's who uh, CEOs and CMOs uh, from around the world. And I've always believed in having smarter people around you, having a lot of smart people around you, a lot of experienced people around you, and then put your view in and, and meddle if necessary, but try not to meddle for meddling's sake. I'm not a micromanager in, in that sense. And so, um, you know, I take a step back. I let, you know, Andreas run the Formula One team on the pit wall. You know, most of the time people think I'm watching the race. I'm watching the latest issue of uh, Scooby-Doo. Uh, no. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we've got a few things he'll talk to me about on pit wall, big executive decisions. But for the most part, you know, I'm just sitting there observing and he's doing a great job. So uh, if I interfere, I'm more likely to mess it up. Have you ever added up how much money you've generated in sponsorship over the last 25 years? I did in the good old days at, at JMI when that's all I did. And it was well north of a, a billion dollars and it's only uh, increased since then. So I'm going to guess a couple billion. That's a lot of dough. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had 10% of all of it. <laughs> I, I bet you do. Right? <laughs> Got a percent of all of it, but not 10. <laughs> and how has the world of sponsorship changed in the last 25 years? Because you've already mentioned you've got 40 partners now yeah. here at McLaren yet no title sponsorship. Yeah, so we're not, you know, to, to address the title sponsorship, we're not really looking for a, a title partner. And the business model that we've built out doesn't require a title partner. And what I mean by that is, of course, I want to have a dominant brand on, on the race car is what you and I would know as a, as a title-looking sponsor. But, you know, the name of the team is McLaren. As soon as you have a title, it's another name, and then you're having to change it every three or five, or it depends how long a, a title sponsorship lasts. And I also don't think the name and the team, depending on the, the, the company, how much incremental benefit there is to actually having your name in the team versus the dominant branding that comes along with it. So we don't need it. Of course, we'd be open to it, but it's nothing that we're actively pursuing. But we are pursuing that high level of branding. We, uh, in an elegant way, want to uh, obviously fill up our car with great brands like we have uh, today, and we're um, we're on our way. And and I think the way the world has changed in sponsorship, it's hard. Uh, it's always been hard because people have different sorts of choices in advertising. But now everything's going digital and social. So I think you know doing the deal hasn't really changed much in 20 years but what you're selling and offering has changed and it's gone to a much more content driven sell if you'd like and digital and social media the days of i just want major eyeballs on television those days are going away now it's more about i want content and going to go from awareness to engagement and with those new platforms is an immense amount of measurement where you know i'd say 20 years ago it was give me a big logo give me a basic understanding of how much tv time i'm getting and it feels good and looks good and i feel like it's big for our brand now it's much much more sophisticated and complex very complex but i think that plays to our our strength i mean our marketing department is is 80 people strong it's have you increased the size of the marketing department? um 
I've definitely changed it. Uh, I think it's slightly increased from where it was. McLaren always had a very large marketing organization. They were always, you know, great with their their brand and servicing partners. But I tried to change things to uh, adapt to kind of what we just spoke about, uh, you know, a bit more from the big branding, big brand status to, you know, I've got a much bigger social media team than four years ago, um, digital offerings. So I, I've changed the mix more than the size of the organization. And then uh, Mark Waller, who runs it, uh, he came from the NFL and Diageo. So I've, you know, we've got plenty of petrol heads within the organization, but in the marketing department, you want a mix of petrol heads, but world-class marketers and um, very, very happy with our team. Has COVID slowed things up? COVID has slowed things up, but it's also created uh, opportunities. We're now doing uh, a show called uh, Slipstream, which is effectively a pregame and postgame uh, show from the garage and from the MTC, which is a kind of a virtual hospitality experience for our partners, for our fans, for our staff. I think we're just as busy as ever probably even busier because we have, you know, some fewer people um, and we're having to work really hard because we're having to do things that we've not done before to make sure we maintain the value for our uh, sponsor partners. So JMI, we've talked about this. What, what does it mean? Just marketing? International. How do you come up with that name? Because it's just marketing. Yeah, it um, it wasn't very clever. I came up with it when I was living in uh, Sheffield, and I don't remember exactly how. You know, I didn't want to put my name on it. You know, which half the people do, and I didn't want to have a, um, you know, kind of racing in it. I remember I took the decision I didn't want to have racing in it because I wanted people to be intrigued when I called to what is it? And, you know, a lot of people don't want to buy motorsports. And so if you have in the title, you know, Zach Brown's calling you from ABC Motorsport Company, you won't get through because they know what it's about. So it wasn't a very sophisticated uh, decision-making process. It probably involved a, a pint of Guinness uh, in Sheffield, but um, it started off as Just Marketing. And then I went Just Marketing International and then uh, changed it to uh, JMI. So it uh, changed a little bit over the years. Why did you focus on motorsport? Because, I mean, you're a baseball fan, you're an ice hockey fan. Um, it's what I knew. And, and, and how it got started was back when I was racing in uh, Formula 3 in, in England. I was able to nick a sponsor from uh, Jackie Stewart and uh, I had TWA Airlines and uh, got a reputation for someone who, you know, could do sponsorship because I didn't uh, come from a place where my family could pay for my, my motor racing. And... Um, I would work at racing schools and would just do anything I could to kind of do a deal to survive. And um, when I got a deal to race back in the States, uh, TWA, my sponsor at the time, said everything's going really good here in Europe. You must know all the guys and gals in pit lane. Can you just place our sponsorship with someone? We don't want it to stop just because you're going back to America. And I went, yeah, I could do that. And I did that and then realized, actually, I can make more money making a living doing that. I still had my desire to, to race, but I thought... As a race car driver, you get a nice Rolodex built up quickly. And I started saying, well, I do know all these different people. It's kind of the wild, wild west. What if I go back to my contacts that seem to engage with me but not want to sponsor me, probably because I wasn't uh, you know, famous, famous enough. And I'd say, well, what if I could kind of 
take you anywhere. And all of a sudden that opened up a whole new uh, conversation where people went, well, I am interested in Formula One, but I want Nigel Mansell's team or Jeff Gordon in America or an IndyCar team. And so that's that's how it got started. So it wasn't really, a, there was no plan. There was no method to the madness. It was just a, a deal by deal. And then it grew into a business. So when did you do your first deal in Formula One? It was Hilton Hotels, who we still have, quickly followed by Johnny Walker. And I'm going to say that ah, was... So McLaren was your first yeah, oh yeah, Formula yeah, One yeah, deal? Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, nice. for, first uh, two, three deals. Um, I think that was 2005, uh, Hilton. And how that came about is a gentleman named Ian Carter. I had done the DeWalt Porsche Super Cup sponsorship and uh ian carter was the president of dewalt tools at the time and then he went to become president of uh, hilton uh international and so we did a deal there quickly followed by uh johnny walker and then i've done deals with the majority of the you know first half of the teams the ups that you see on the ferrari we did i did um so that's fascinating how different are the teams so doing a deal with mclaren take, take yourself out of the yep. mclaren picture but doing a deal with mclaren how different is that to doing a deal with ferrari they're all different and i think it, it's it's good because it wasn't that long ago so i i have a really good sense of how everyone operates their strengths and their weaknesses and of course i'm able to um sell into those situations. Um, Ferrari was exciting because uh, it was Ferrari and I'd never done a, a deal with them. And it was Are the numbers big much bigger at Ferrari? No, su surprisingly not. You know, that was the, the thing that you kind of think through. Uh, McLaren always had probably the strongest rate card. I assumed Ferrari would be, but to my surprise, they weren't. In fact, on the UPS deal, the number was, uh, it's a good number, but lower than I would have thought the side pod would have been. And uh, John Hogan, uh, Hoagie, who was, uh, helped bring me into Formula One, he said, well, just give it a go. And I put out an offer that I thought, mm, this is, and they accepted it. Red Bull is inexpensive. Um, inexpensive. Inexpensive. Uh, some of my smaller deals were, were done there. Williams, I did the Lenovo, the Martini, the, the Unilever. They were kind of about right. Uh, and Ron was tough to negotiate with. Um, you did a lot of negotiating with Ron and uh, Ron and Ekram. So knowing what you know now about Formula One teams having run one, what would you have done differently when you were the boss of JMI selling sponsorship or nothing? I, I would not have done it any differently because I think it bites, bites you in the long run. But what I could have done, I could have been more greedy. And what do I mean by that? You know, once I've come into Formula One and seen all the characters you can push really hard. My own point of view is sometimes people push too hard and you need to play the, the long game. So I think there would have been opportunity for, for me to grow the bottom line even further at JMI, but it maybe would have bruised relationships along, along the way, which is part of some of the disappointing part of, of Formula One is you see some people that are a bit short-sighted at times and don't play the long game. So I could have done that differently. I'm glad I didn't, but, you know, I could have had a few more shekels uh, in, in the bank account. Are you on the other side of the coin now? Do you have people coming to you trying to sell you deals? And uh, you yeah. can sort of say, no, 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 that's not how you do it, fella. <laughs> well, it's, it, uh, it is funny. Some of them, um, 
some of the agencies that we we've worked with uh, have been awesome, and then others have been uh, amateur hour. Um, we tend to do the majority of our uh, partnerships, you know, in house. Of course, if someone's representing someone and it's real and credible, then of course we'll work with them. But uh, I'm not dependent upon uh, agencies. We kind of have our own in house agency, and I'm I'm happy with that approach. Now, a while back, you mentioned uh, your racing career. You know, you were doing. Uh, I think you said. British Formula 3. So can we talk about Zach Brown, the racing driver? Look, how, how did a guy, a kid from California, get involved in racing? Were your family racing fans? No, my dad would take me just as kind of the the races in town uh, two or three times a, a year. Uh, Are we talking Long Beach? Or? Uh, so my first ever race was Long Beach Grand Prix in 1981. I still have the race program. Williams won that day. I remember like it was yesterday. I remember meeting Eddie Cheever. I was 10 years old. Uh, I didn't Was Eddie a- Cheever then, as a result of that meeting, a hero? Yeah, he was, well, because he was also the, you know, the American guy at the U.S. race, and he had a good race. I think he finished fifth or something like that. I think he was American to Americans and Italians to Italians, Italians. old Eddie, wasn't he? Exactly. (laughs) So that was my first race, but I didn't know who any of the drivers, you know, I didn't. I was 10 years old. It was just, but I thought it was so cool uh and i remember the the williams cars like it was yesterday the fly saudi livery and then we would go to riverside for the sports car and the nascar races so the imsa camel g uh, uh gt and the warner hodgden 400 and then we'd go to drag races in pomona so that's what we went to me my dad and my brother and it would just be a kind of a sunday the races in town type of thing so we didn't know what was kind of going on we didn't follow it but it was you know i loved loved cars so that was kind of 81 to probably 85 then when i went to high school it was with a buddy named nick aarons who was related to mickey thompson the famous uh off-road uh, racer who was murdered and then uh, turned out to be by his partner that he got busted 20 years later and uh, they took me to the Long Beach Grand Prix. And at this point, I was starting to look at karting. And we it was the 87 Long Beach Grand Prix. Mario uh, put it on pole and destroyed everyone. I asked Mario. We did dinner with Mario. It was a big group. And I was very intimidated because um, Nick's family knew him. And I said, how do you get started in racing? And he said, karting. And in the race program, there was an ad for Jim Hall Kart Racing School. I had been on Wheel of Fortune a few years uh, before. On Hang on, what's that? What's Wheel of Wheel of Fortune, Fortune is this um, game show in a, TV in game T- show. TV oh, game I think we show. had it in the UK. Yeah, maybe. And um, Hang on, stop. how did you end up on Wheel of Fortune? So we um, they came around to school. It was Teen Week, so they would do once a year teens and. Um, my buddy at the time, Amani Smith, I remember like it was yesterday, said, let's go try out to be on the show. They would go around to the different schools. And um, it's like uh, Hangman is, is, is the game. You know, you kind of give me a letter A, B, et cetera. And um, went through quite a few rounds. Uh, it's quite a big process. And then they ultimately call you after you go through about three or four rounds if you're going to get on. And I got on and I won the first two rounds and got a bunch of Cartier watches and um, <laughs> Apple computer. And um, so then when I saw the the ad, I went and sold all that stuff and paid for myself to go to the kart racing school and to get a get a cart. And that's what got me into uh, got me into racing. And how successful were you karting? In karting, I was good. Maybe as as good as I was ever going to get. Uh, but in karting, I was I, I, I won a lot. And how big a deal was it then to come to Europe? Oh, it was 
And why did you come to it? Why didn't you stay in the States? Uh, I wanted to race Formula One. You know, I thought that was where... um, Skip Barber Racing School? I did Skip Barber Racing School at Bridgehampton, which is now condominiums, I believe. (laughs) And uh, I raced in carts against uh, Richie Hearn, who went on to do IndyCars. Kevin Harvick, who's still racing uh, NASCAR. So that was kind of my karting uh, era. And then in Formula 3, I was against uh, Dario Franchitti and Helio Castroneves. Um, so that's British Formula 3. British Formula 3. And actually, uh, Zach, I did look it up. And you, you also raced against Fisichella. And you raced against Jano Trulli. And then, Do you remember these guys? Do you remember racing these yeah, guys? Yeah, and uh, Jos Verstappen. So, I mean, the fastest guys, Kevin Magnus, uh, not Kevin, Jan. Uh, yeah. So now I'm yeah. uh, the fastest guys I ever raced against and at the time they were unbelievable montoya destroyed all of us kenny breck that was in barber Saab. i remember when montoya won in miami everyone said he was the next senna and no one knew who he was but he was awesome yos verstappen was extremely uh quick i raced against him in uh opal lotus i remember dario coming into my motorhome he was buddies with my uh, teammate a guy named J- uh, johnny uh, molum and Magnuson had broken Senna's record that year, and Dario won, I think, the first race of the year, and then Magnuson won the next 13. So this is the 1994 British Formula 3 championship. And I remember Dario coming in going, you know, I can't beat Jan. He's destroyed me. My career's over, you know, all that. And he's gone on to have a pretty damn good career and then used to um, work out. uh, I remember when David Coulthard, there was this kind of racing club, and I didn't know David. He was kind of a the superstar in Formula 3000. But I remember when his deal, he thought, had fallen apart with uh, Jackie Stewart in Formula 3000. He thought his career was over. So it was uh, it was funny. And uh, great guys and great... Well, most of them are great guys. Um, <laughs> Zach, did you enjoy living in England as a racing driver? Is this when you were in Sheffield? or? Yeah, I started in East Sussex, Heathfield. Um, and then when I moved out, the population was, was halved because it had like one high street. Um, <laughs> but did you have contacts in the UK? So when you no, first came over, what no. happened? You got off the plane got, and... Got, got off the plane and uh, where I met Richard Dean was at uh, Jim Russell Racing School. And then they had like a, I don't want to call it a world finals, but a, a year end thing. And I won that. And he was my uh, instructor. I then got a deal, and I don't even remember how it came about with Eagle Racing, um, and they were down south, and uh, they went bust, and instead of, so I started the season, and Richard said, well, I'm come sleep on my sister's living room floor, which I did in, in Sheffield on a air mattress, and then he just took me under his wings. Uh, he was racing Formula 3000 at the time. And uh, it got me the gig to go work at Jim Russell Racing School. And, yeah, there were some great times uh, we, we had. So I absolutely loved it. And that's why I came back. And I've been here uh, for eight years now. And I consider England very much home. And at what point did the penny start to drop that you maybe were better at bringing in the money than delivering the laptop? Am I being harsh? I don't mean... No, no, no. <laughs> I, well, I heard that through my whole driving career. And at the time, Sorry. it... Um, it pissed you off a lot because I want, you know, doing the deals was all about just giving myself the opportunity to continue to race. I think it was probably about 98 when I figured out I'm not going to be good enough to get to where I want to go. Which was where? I was in America then in uh, Toyota Atlantic. And um, I think that was when the, 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 even though I'd been hearing it, because when you're raising money, the racing industry would much rather you raise the money than you race. So I, I started hearing 
pretty early on, 95, 96, you should do this marketing stuff and give up racing, but I didn't want to hear it. 98, I think I started to recognize I wasn't going to be good enough. And then I did my last two years with Porsche in 99 and 2000, and I wasn't happy in 99 and then 2000. I, I just didn't want to go to the racetrack. So I think it actually helped kind of burning out because it made it easier to walk away as opposed to being, well, maybe a show. I mean, I was by 2000. I didn't want to see a, a race car again. And um, then my business took off because I could really focus on it. And then I got back in a race car for the first time in uh, 06. But at that point, it was just for, for fun. And I've actually enjoyed racing more now because I don't have anything to prove and I'm not doing it for a living. So now I enjoy my racing more than when I did it in the 90s. What's your proudest achievement as a driver? Probably, I've got a, a couple. Probably the one I enjoyed the most was winning the Ferrari Challenge race in Montreal. Um, supporting the Grand Prix. Supporting the Grand Prix. Qualified second, took the lead in turn one, led. And, you know, it was Sunday morning before the Grand Prix. And then when I came in through the uh, F1 pit lane, a lot of the F1 team started coming out and giving me high fives. And Domenicali, uh, who was running Ferrari at the time, presented me with the trophy. So that was cool because of the atmosphere. And then if there was one other, uh, it was the Formula 5000 race. I've got Mario Andretti's Formula 5000 car, and there was about 50 people entered. And this was at Laguna Seca and historic races, but uh, put it on pole by a good margin and led every lap and dominated. And that was cool because I'm now very friendly with Mario. Um, who's one of my heroes. Uh, it's number two on the list. Number, uh, Senna's number one. I've got a list. <laughs> and um, the last time that car ran it, won at Laguna. So I kind of felt, uh, Mario, I didn't let you down. I made sure your car stayed uh, undefeated at Laguna Seca. That's fantastic. Now, you've touched on something there. Uh, you say that you own that car, but it seems to me whenever you've had some spare cash lying around, you've been investing in cars or just racing cars? Both. I'm a car guy. I don't want you to give away any, too many secrets, but how many have you got? Pooh, um, my total collection's near about 50 now, wow. um, and it's probably uh, two-thirds race cars, a third road cars, and I, I love them all. They're all like kids. I've got a, and, and, I, and I, when I buy them, even though they're great investments, I'm buying them because I, I love them. I used to collect the little model cars. And as Richard said, all I've done is done the same thing. I've just got the bigger <laughs> version uh, now. And um, I've got a collecting criteria, which in the race cars, each car that I have had to have won a race in period. I don't care who drove it, what car it was. If it finished second, I'm not interested. So all my cars have won races. In my Formula One collection, all the cars were driven by world champions. My IndyCar collection are all driven by IndyCar champions. So, and they're all the stuff that is personal to me growing up, the stuff of the posters I had on the on the wall, so to speak. So it uh, makes me feel like a little kid again. Can you tell us what cars you've got? Or the ones you're, you're, the ones you're most proud of? Yeah, I, well, I'm, uh, I love them all. It's like, which is your favorite <laughs> kid? Um, some that, that stand out. Senna's 1991 uh, McLaren uh, Monaco winner championship year. So if I had to pick one to take with me, that would be it because Senna was my guy, McLaren's my team. And it's the actual Monaco. chassis. It's he the won actual, it. actual car he won, uh, won wow. from Poland. Uh, I've got Mario's uh, Lotus 79 that he debuted in the uh, in Belgium when he won, and that was a you know, JPS 
car saw in the Formula One, and then I've got Nigel's uh, FW11B from 87, the car he won the British Grand Prix in with that famous move on PK. So, um, those Are they are some, all goers? Do they all go everything engines? runs. Everything runs. It has to run. And then on the IndyCar side, um, I got directly from Roger, uh, who's my hero in, in, in business and in racing. Um, Emo's 1989 Indy 500 winner and championship car. I'm a huge Emo fan. McLaren's first world champion. I remember that race like it was yesterday. Touched a little owl with about three laps to go. It's a Penske car I got from Roger. So that, from an IndyCar standpoint, is um, my favorite. And then I've got, you know, an Al Jr., a Danny Sullivan, a Michael Andretti. I've got another one that's just very emotional for me is the, I found Mario's 1987 Long Beach Grand Prix uh, winner. The one that got it all started for me and um, took about two years to restore it. And then Mario and I went to Chicago last year and he shook it down for me. And a lot of the team, because the team was based in Chicago, Newman Haas came out. And so to kind of, and the thing that was even cooler was, you know, who his engineer was Adrian Newey <laughs> and Adrian was there. So we got this great photo we've got with it, all of Adrian's uh, setup sheets. So we've got a photo of Mario in the car, Adrian next to him with his setup sheets. And it was just, you know, to me, that's that's why I, I collect is for moments like that to reunite Adrian and Mario in the car, which is what got me into racing. So, the, you know, that's each car has yeah. kind of a story like that behind it. Where do you keep them? I keep my race cars up in uh, Leeds at, at United Auto Sports because they all need continuous looking after and then i keep my road cars a, a few at the house the kids rotate through uh, which ones we uh, which ones we want and then the other in a, in a car storage unit and my road cars are everything from you know 1965 289 cobra up to you know the mclaren uh, speed tail and i like a variety there so it's ferraris and lamborghinis and aston martins and um yeah i'm a Sorry, i'm a car this guy. is fantastic wow and did i read a story that the McLaren M23 and the Ferrari 312 that they used in the film Rush. Are they yours? No, I had the M26 and then I had the Lauda 312 and I didn't fit in it. So I sold that, which was one of my biggest regrets because part of my criteria used to be if I can't drive it, I don't want it. I bought the Lauda car and it's what he won his first two Grand Prix in and uh, I sold it. And that's probably my one of my bigger regrets in life because I, I since got to know Nicky and he was a, a legend and a great guy. So that was um, that was a mistake. Is there one car that you'd still really like to own? Um, well, I just got one last week, which is the one I've been searching for Hot for about five press, years. Hot off you? the press, a uh, Schumacher winning uh, Ferrari. Um, because I, you know, I, I love all these teams, the Williams, the Lotus, the McLarens, the Ferraris. When I sold the uh, Nicky Lauda car, I didn't have a Ferrari Grand Prix car in my uh, collection, which I know is a luxury problem to have, but nonetheless. So which um, Schumacher car is that? 97, that he won uh, Montreal French Grand Prix in from pole, led in Silverstone, but broke, and then had a bad race in Austria. I still have to look up why he finished 12th. It's um, not the chassis that he took to Jerez, is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> Diff different, different chassis. But to me, Schumacher, you know, sitting here today, is the greatest statistically the greatest race car driver of all time. I think Lewis will uh, catch and surpass him. Uh, so I kind of felt like I needed a Schumacher car because he, uh, he was certainly a hero growing up. So look, while we're talking racing drivers, I just wanted to ask you about a few. Fernando Alonso. 
most recently, you've just been to the Indy 500 with him. Didn't go so well, but he raced with you for a couple of seasons in Formula One. What are his standout qualities? Because we're going to see him in Formula One again next year. I've really enjoyed working with him. I'm, I'm disappointed we've never been in a situation where we've had a competitive car together. I mean, we did in, 07, in 17 at Indy, and then um, before we broke, he drove for United Autosports at Daytona and got up to third. Um, so those were probably the most two competitive outings. Uh, I wish I had the opportunity to race with him in a race-winning car. I've never seen someone so dedicated, focused. He doesn't underestimate the challenge ahead, so he, he studies a, a lot. And I've never seen someone who doesn't quit in every lap. He's just on it. So even when he was pounding around in 15th in one of our McLarens, he was racing like it was for the for the win. And uh, I think a lot of drivers, you know, kind of get demoralized or give up or it's only 15th. That guy is just on it all the time. And he's not arrogant. While I think he thinks he's the best, he knows he has to practice to get there. So he doesn't, you know, underestimate the challenge. And I think that's what makes him so good is he gives it all he has in every way. He doesn't show up and say, I'm two-time world champion. This is easy. He, he's very, very focused. Do you think he's as quick now as he was 15 years ago? You know, 15 years ago, I didn't work with him. So, you know, I think all these drivers slow down a, a little bit. But from what I've seen, I, I, you know, maybe over one lap. But, you know, if you're in a mano a mano fight, I don't think there's a driver you'd rather have than Fernando Alonso. So I think he's going to be uh, on the pace and uh, someone to be reckoned with next year in the Renault or the Alpine. Are there any weaknesses to Fernando Alonso? Is it a travesty that he hasn't won more than two world titles? Or has he been his own worst enemy? Well, you, you know, what's funny is when I first met him, everyone said he was going to be a, a handful, right? He has that reputation. He was great to work with. We established a great relationship very early on. And, you know, you would think with how poor of a race car we, we gave him, you know, he'd be a a nightmare to deal with and he and he wasn't um you know indianapolis this this last time around and when we didn't qualify total professional so i've not really seen any weaknesses uh out of him now i wasn't here you know it does seem like he always made the wrong decision at the wrong time but you, you know no one knows that at the time you know when he went to ferrari when he left ferrari you know when he left us so you know could he be seven eight time world champion for sure, but he's not been in a most dominant race car. But I think he certainly could have had a, a lot more championships under his belt. So all the GP2 engine and all those outbursts that we got prior to you coming to the team, that surprises you? Yeah, he didn't do that with uh, with me. Um, I mean, even behind closed doors, did no, you? No, never, never. Um, and, and I kind of anticipated it. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you take the worst, not qualifying for Indy. He was total professional it was kind of is what it is we gave it our best shot you know he know he knew he did what he could and you know he's not gonna you know kind of cry over spilt milk so I, I didn't have which I know a lot of people kind of find it hard to b believe given you know the reputation and I don't know if that's coming coming back to being a racer knowing how to handle him in certain environments because I think if you handle them wrong you know these guys are all um, you know caged animals and so if you you kind of know when to feed them when to pet him when to take him for a walk um and you know maybe that's an, an area that um 
you know, I'm I'm comfortable kind of knowing, you know. The fact that you've raced, does that help? I, I think so, because, you know, it, it's very emotional. So, you know, he's, the GP2 engine, drivers are, there's outbursts all the time on the on the radio, but because of who he is and the situation, that one got a lot of attention. But you know, he, every Grand Prix there's outbursts from from drivers, so uh, he just seems to get the the spotlight a little bit more. He's bright as well, isn't it? Really shines smart. through when you speak to him. He's very very smart, uh, and he's loyal. Um, or he has been to me and McLaren during our, our time. So I've got nothing but great things to, to say about him. And also, you know, I guess one of the things that probably does bother you from time to time and you don't get it now because he's not racing with us, people are under the impression that, you know, Fernando was calling the shots at McLaren. That was just so far from the, the truth. He was, you know, you have a two-time world champion and you value his input and you, but you know, he, he never once you know give me this do this do that he was just driving our race car so uh i think there's a lot of uh, which is a shame a, a lot of uh, wrong ideas about what's fernando uh, about at least that's you know all i can really talk to is my experience with him given how much you're praising him how difficult was it to replace him with a relative unknown in lando norris you know it was it was difficult um you know, Lando, we put him in some free practice ones to see how he would uh, cope with it. And he did great. Um, there was a funny incident in uh, Monza, which was the first time Lando was up against Fernando in free practice one. And they were trading times. Lando, he was he was as quick. And um, Fernando then set a better time. And then on the last run, uh, it was funny. Um, Lando looked like he was maybe going to put in a you know, slightly quicker time. And then uh, Fernando says he didn't see him and messed up his lap on the third uh, <laughs> third sector. And we all kind of laughed on pit wall. It was like, welcome to Formula One, Lando. And it wasn't anything nasty, but it was kind of welcome to the big boy club. And uh, it was it was it was it was funny because um, I can so see Fernando doing that. it was. Yeah, it wasn't. It was just <laughs> enough to get him to, you know, lose a tenth or two. So um, but, you know, that's good fun. That's what you'd expect from someone like Fernando Alonso. They, you know, he's not going to. Uh, have the new boy come in and uh, not teach him a few lessons. So, Lando, 18 months in, how's he improved? How impressed are you? Very, very impressed. I think what's been most impressive is how mature he is on, on the track. Um, you know, Leclerc and Sauber, his first three races, people were talking about moving him on because he crashed a lot. Even, you know, Max and Lando doesn't, um, if he makes a mistake, he doesn't try and fix that mistake in the next corner which some of these young guys uh do they get kind of over their skis if you'd like and um so he's been very quick uh he's very enjoyable to work with but he's been i think what surprises me the most very mature he hasn't had that you know knock on wood dumb rookie mistakes that you expect out of a rookie in in formula one and then this year he's just maturing even more what we wanted to see this year is last year he was maybe even a little too cautious and so when I look at his start that he had in Monza, that's what we wanted to see him do this year was last year he showed pace and maturity. This year we want to see pace, maturity, but take a little bit more risk and get your elbows out. And if I look at that first lap at Monza, um, that was exactly what we were hoping to start to see him do. From a media point of view, I feel he's coming across a little bit more serious this year. Do you see that? Or did you even advise him to be a little bit more? Because he was quite jokey last year, yeah. wasn't he? No, we we um we just kind of let him do what he wants to do. I think that's naturally, you know, part of the maturing 
uh, process. Uh, what's funny is he's he's actually a pretty quiet and reserved guy. He kind of turns it on a little bit in front of the uh, the the microphone, but he does it. It's very genuine. That is who he is. But he's got a uh, a great sense of humor that when a microphone's in front of him, he just kind of seems to say and do the funny things at the right time in a very authentic way. So Carlos Sainz, brilliant podium in Monza. Could you have done more to keep him for 21? Or did he present the move to Ferrari as a done deal? No, we we, um, we could have kept him. Um, we had an, an agreement. We could have stopped that. Um, you had a contract. We, we had, a, well, we had an option. An option. Okay. Correct. Okay. Correct. And um, he, you know, kind of coming back to what I said earlier about, you know, there's McLaren, Ferrari, Williams, fans, you know, as a race car driver, you understand uh some people want to drive for McLaren their whole life, Ferrari, et cetera. So when they showed interest, we tried to get Daniel Ricciardo uh, the first time around uh, a couple of years ago. So he was always kind of highest on our list. And um, when Andreas joined, you know, we kept in touch with Daniel. And so conversations were starting with Daniel. We got the sense he wasn't happy where he was at. So it was more kind of the stars aligned in that we wanted to explore Daniel Carlos wanted to explore Ferrari. We could have said no, but we had an interest in in Daniel, and we kind of thought, hmm, if we can end up with Daniel and Carlos ends up with Ferrari, that's that's a that's a good ending for uh, both of us. Um, so we would have never let Carlos go if we didn't feel we could have got Daniel. Um, but when we thought that window was open, we kind of said, yeah, let's go explore and kind of set a date where we would come back to each other and. Turned out we could get Daniel, and Ferrari did want him. So we said, "Great, let's 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 do it." What came first, Carlos's move, desire to go to Ferrari, or your desire to hire Daniel Ricciardo? Um, well, we always had a desire to hire Daniel. Uh, what I don't know is when uh, Carlos got first approached by Ferrari. So I wouldn't know timing wise. Um, by the time he approached us about Ferrari. Um, We'd started conversations with uh, Daniel. Um, so my guess is they probably happened uh, in, in parallel paths, which uh, worked out great because the way that we're parting companies, because um, you never know what's going to come back around, was, was awesome because we've got total harmony in the garage and he did this great video and, you know, he's given it all he's got. We're giving it all we've got. And then when you look at, you know, how Vettel and Ferrari are exiting and, Checo and Racing Point and even Daniel and Renault, you know, there's not a lot of harmony there. So I'm very proud because uh, we're, you know, relationships are very important to us. And Carlos has been uh, an outstanding person to work with. So I'm really happy it's worked out in a, in a situation where everyone's happy. And when you see Carlos go so well, like at Monza, tiny bit of you wish you, you were keeping him or? Well, you know, I'd like to run three cars. <laughs> yes. uh, so if I could, Zach Brown yeah. wants three car teams. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he's <laughs> he's he's great, and you know, we're going to wish him you know the best, and hopefully Daniel and uh, Lando see him in uh, their rearview mirrors. Well, you've mentioned Ricardo a bit. What impresses you the most about Daniel? His aggressiveness. He's aggressive. Um, he's runs all his teammates very hard. You know, he beat Vettel. He's you know, beaten Ocon handedly. He's, you know, he and Max, there was, you know, really not much between it. So I, I like how aggressive uh, he is. Of course, I like his personality. Um, you know, we got to know him a, a lot 
the last time uh, last time around. But as a, as a racing driver, you know, he's a guy that you know if he's behind you, he's coming. Yeah, sending it. He's sending Licking it. the stamp. Yep. Licking the stamp. Um, but when someone like Vettel was available, does the marketeer in you think, oh, we could have had a four-time world champion drive for McLaren and no, think what I, I could have done with that? I think, uh, I think Daniel Vettel is obviously... A, uh, outstanding talent and four-time world champion, but um, I think Daniel's a, a bigger personality. So actually, if you were going to compare the two, while one has four world championships and the other has seven uh, Grand Prix wins, I think um, there's more runway left in in Daniel, and he's a great personality that I think will fit really well with Lando and within our team. So with all due respect to Seb, you know, Daniel would be who I'd... Uh, select before us, which is exactly what we did. So the combination of Daniel Ricciardo, Lando Norris, and the Mercedes power unit in 21, how confident are you you're going to take a step forward? Well, the field's tight and seems to be getting tighter, but we think that'll be another step forward. It is effectively going to be the 2020 car, so I think what we see this year is a lot what next year will look like. We'll get a power unit advantage, we believe, in the change, but we also uh, are restricted. There's this token system on how much development you can do, and we're having to use our tokens for the engine development. So we're going to benefit from the engine change, we believe, but it'll be to the detriment to the chassis upgrades. So I don't think 21 is going to look radically different from this year but i do hope we just continue to close the gap and then it's really uh, all bets off for 22. so the final piece in this f1 puzzle is andreas seidel it would appear why did you choose him to be team principal because there must be another option yeah um we'd interviewed a, a bunch of people including some you know team principals that are uh, in in pit lane today I like Andreas a, a lot. I like his, he's very focused on the team. He's no nonsense. He's very goal driven. He's a racer. He likes to keep things simple, empower his people. Uh, we get along uh, great, you know, and getting the chemistry right is, is important. Um, and so the two of us work together very well. I'm very respectful and give him his space on what he needs to do. And on the on the flip side, he's very respectful and gives me the space for what I need to do. So the combination uh, of us, I think, works really well. And um, he's been a huge uh, part of the success that we're having. Does he have carte blanche to do whatever he wants? Or Yeah, he pretty much does. I mean, you know, with that comes you got to keep us informed and he's he's an adult he knows when he should run he's a great communicator so yeah it's his team to run he's demonstrated he makes the right decisions but he also knows when he needs to consult it's never good to surprise someone i don't surprise my shareholders he doesn't want to surprise me so while he has carte blanche he knows how to work as a team but yeah it's it's his f1 team and you know my job is to give him the resources and the direction he needs to be able to do what he needs to do which is go win uh, formula one races did you ever consider the role of team principal for yourself no because i coming back to you know i'm not technical enough and you know i think mclaren's a big organization we've got an indycar team and so you know i've got to run the business and um you know you you got to make sure you have subject matter uh, expertise and i don't have the skill set to actually run 
a Formula One team. I think I've got the skill set to run the business of a Formula One team and the business of an IndyCar team. But the minute I think I can actually run a Formula One team, that, that I would be weighing over my skis. It's fun sitting on the pit wall, though. You've said all bets are off for 2022, but recent news that you're going to put the McLaren Technology Center up for sale, um, that might make some McLaren fans nervous. Mm. Need they be? Have you got the resources you need? No, definitely not. Um, you know, that's a traditional sale leaseback scenario. I would say the majority of the companies in this world don't actually own the building that they uh, they live in, um, their tenants. You know, we've got a lot of money tied up in that building. And at a time where we want to invest in our business, both our Formula One team and our road car business, to have that amount of money tied up in a building when we're not a real estate company. So what we need to do is we need to live there. We don't need to own it. And if we can then get that cash back and then reinvest that in the team and in the business, that's going to help grow us while still being a tenant. We've got the best of, of all worlds. So, um, you know, I know it makes for a concerning headline, McLaren selling McLaren Technology Center, but we're not moving out. Um, and we don't need to be a, a real estate owner. We're an automotive company and a, a racing company. In what particular directions do you want to spend that money? Is it wind tunnels? Is there, is there anything you feel you're lacking? Yeah, um, CapEx is something that we have underspent on in the last 10 years. So whether it's wind tunnels and simulators, there's a lot of refreshing that we need to do. But then there's also the automotive side of the business, which is um, growing quickly. It's 10 years old. And, you know, that requires a lot of CapEx when you're rolling out, you know, new models and new technologies. So it'll ultimately go into the the pot for McLaren Group and uh, Paul Walsh, our, our chairman, to decide where the various investments should go within the, uh, within the group. I wanted to ask you quickly about IndyCar. Why is it important for McLaren to be an IndyCar? We've got a great history there, having won uh, Indianapolis three times. North America is a very important market for McLaren, our automotive business, and the majority of our, our sponsor partners. Formula One doesn't have as big of a presence in North America as that it should, and I think it will over time. So when we're trying to have a commercial advantage in the marketplace to be able to, you know, one, one of the things people talk about in Formula One is, yeah, but it's not big in America. So to be able to have a, as part of our portfolio, a bigger presence in North America, I think gives us a competitive advantage from a commercial standpoint. Um, we're a racing entity. Uh, we like to go racing. So if, if it's something that we think fits our brand, adds, you know, we've got someone like Pato Award. Um, I think that guy's a potential future Formula One driver. So it's a way to nurture talent. Could we see him test the F1 yeah, car? I, I, those, those discussions are happening if we ever get back to testing. So, yeah, so it fits really well in the overall uh, puzzle. It's why we're in eSports, to go after the younger generation. As you know, we were one of the, well, we were the first team to really embrace eSports. So it's about rounding out the commercial proposition because all of our commercial partners have different agendas. But a lot of them say, what about North America? Or what about a younger audience? And so to have... Um, McLaren Racing be able to offer you Formula One, some IndyCar, some eSports, uh, gives us a competitive advantage off the track. Do you own your factory in IndyCar? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the team we're partnered with actually does, but uh, okay. it's not nearly as valuable. <laughs> and on that topic, Checo Perez, who knows where he's going to end up next year? Is he going to stay in Formula One, maybe with Alfa Romeo or Haas? Or is he going to go to IndyCar? My guess is he'll end up in Formula One. Uh, Has he been on the phone to you about IndyCar? Nope, nope. nope. Um, but 
you know, I think Haas, they're certainly due for a, a driver change. And, uh, you know, Checo and, and Hulkenberg, you know, showed uh, his talents once again in Silverstone. So who knows what's happening with Kimi? Who knows what's happening with both Haas drivers? And I would think Checo and Nico have to be one and two on anyone's list if you're looking for a driver in in one order or the other. So I'd be surprised if Checo wouldn't stay in F1. Knowing the two championships as you do, if you're a Formula One driver and go to IndyCar, let's say he goes to IndyCar in 21, would it then be very difficult to I, come I back? Think, yeah, I think at his age, not that he's old, he's you know 30. <laughs> yes. um, I think once you kind of check out of Formula One, it's, it's, it's hard to come back. Not impossible, but hard. Zach, thank you. What a wonderful chat. Just in summary, can you tell me what the sport of motor racing means to you it's my life it's uh it's my love you know it kind of comes back to uh playing with hot wheels and uh kind of dream teams and now i'm fortunate to be able to do it uh with with real drivers and real real race cars so for me it's uh it's always been my my passion ever since a, a young kid and uh i love it i consider myself to be one of the bigger fans of uh, motor racing and that's one of the reasons i enjoy engaging with all the fans um you know i'm always responding to their tweets and Facebook notes because it wasn't long ago I was one of them on the outside looking in just wanting to meet a driver get a little bit more uh, taste of the action and so I, I kind of feel a part of my responsibility is to bring this great sport we live in to the fans because without the fans there would be no motor racing so we need to make sure uh, we take care of them because they're they're really numero uno in this sport we we live in without fans there wouldn't be a, a formula one or an indy car here here zach thank you very much for your time great chat thank you very much motor racing is my life motor racing is my love what a wonderful way for Zach to sum up his passion for the sport. And that passion is what really shone through during our conversation. Ever since he attended his first Grand Prix, Long Beach 81, he's loved this sport. I learned so much about Zach too. His management style and the fact that he's not afraid to employ top-class people such as Andreas Seidel. His understanding of drivers, which helped him to manage characters like Fernando Alonso and his car collection Wow! Nigel Mansell's Williams FW11B, the actual car in which he dummied Nelson Piquet to win the 1987 British Grand Prix. Yes, please! Zach, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat and thanks too to McLaren for helping to make it happen. Well, that's almost it for this week. But before I go, I've got a couple of things I want to share with you. First up, here's a sneak preview of next week's show. Trust me. You're going to like it. People said, I oh, didn't have to overtake Jensen in that final part of the race. But if I hadn't passed him there and get these extra three points, I don't think I would have been world champion that year. So it was worth it. I think if you worry too much, then don't do it. Don't worry. Just do it. You know, if you think it's a good idea, do it and you'll figure it out along the way. I think that's the state of mind where ultimately you'd like to be all the time in terms of just doing what's right in front of you and sorting it out. Don't overthink it, basically. You know who that is, don't you? Many of you have been asking for this guy for months. Well, 
Your wish is my command. And he didn't disappoint. And if you want to hear more from this four-time world champion, don't miss next week's episode out on all of your favourite podcast platforms from Wednesday the 7th of October. And second, let's run through some of your comments about last week's show, the second of our Ferrari specials. Richard Kay got in touch to say this. That's made a rainy morning delivering shopping more entertaining, he said. Part one and part two back to back. Are you in a truck, Richard? I'm only joking, of course, although Alain Prost would like to know. Thanks for getting in touch and I'm glad you enjoyed the shows. Flexi Goo, that's a great name, Message to say, what a story from Mansell, winning after his steering wheel fell off on his lap at 200 miles an hour. Wasn't it great to hear from Nigel Flexi Goo? Some of his stories about life at the Scuderia were fabulous. And not least that one about the steering wheel failure while en route to victory on debut for the team in Brazil, 1989. And let's read out one more. How about this one from Cesar Calderon, who says, What an amazing two episodes about Ferrari. So many great memories about the team. I wish we could hear more from Sebastian. But these two episodes are the best ones so far. Thanks very much, Cesar. I'm glad you enjoyed the shows and watch this space when it comes to Sebastian. Make sure you tune in next week. Well, folks, many thanks as ever for your messages. And if I didn't read out your message, don't give up. Please keep them coming in because I read each and every one of them. And as ever, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, where you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>